Hello, hello. <laughs> My name is Andrew, for those of you guys who don't know me. Um, I, just a quick introduction. Uh, I explained last time, I'm kind of from all over the place. I'm from the East Coast, the Midwest, as well as the West Coast, but currently I call SoCal my home. And uh, what else? I'm, I guess, functionally, I'm not like a pastor at a church currently, um, even though I do preach a lot. I guess my technical title is something like evangelist missionary, um, <laughs> uh, how I operate functionally. But uh, I, I have the opportunity to preach in a lot of places and, and contexts, and I love sp speaking the word of God, and, and it's such a privilege for me to be with you guys today. And so I'm really excited. I this, I'm really excited to speak on this passage. Uh, recently, uh, God has been giving me so much revelation, and this became one of my favorite passages to speak on recently. And today, I want to speak to you guys on the subject of faithfulness. And uh, I've entitled this message, I Want to Be Found Faithful. And for so much of my life, if I was really honest, I would look at God and and I would look at my life, and I would look at my parents, and I would look at my friends. And what my greatest desire was, was I wanted to be found successful. And I wanted to be found fruitful. And I wanted to be found, let's be honest, I wanted to be found rich and famous. And <laughs> I wanted to be found a person that makes an impact in this world. But as I've searched the scriptures, I've realized that what I really want is to be found faithful in God's eyes. I want to start by saying few words in the English language have caused me as much stress and anxiety as the word success. I spent so many years defining success, chasing success, and often falling short of success. And so much of my anxiety comes from having a false view of what it means to succeed in this life. And this is because we create an image of what it means to succeed in our given field or society our sphere of influence, based on those around us, those, uh, based on our bosses, based on our parents, come on somebody, based on uh, our friends and our brothers and our sisters that we've been compared to all of our lives, compared to our coworkers, compared to those in magazines and those on TV and those in movies. And when we fail to reach that standard, we think that we are failures. And the reason the Bible sets us free, offers us ultimate freedom, is because it offers us God's perspective. It always offers us God's perspective. In a world that is filled with definitions of what it means to be successful, God shows us what true success really looks like. And success isn't measured by how much you have or by how much you accomplish. Success is measured by how faithful you are with what God has given to you. And so when we consider the passage that we just read, the parable of the talents, I believe that God, well, Jesus Christ, is showing us what it means to succeed in his kingdom, by what metric he measures success when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. Because in a worldly sense, five talents is, seems like a way lot more than one talent. It seems like a lot more than two talents. And in, in our worldview, $100, if I handed one person $100, you would think that they're a lot more successful, gifted, and talented 
than if I were to hand somebody $5. But we have to understand the perspective that God is giving to us. And the first point that I want to glean from this passage is something that has been setting me free. And this might sound actually really controversial, and that's why I have to explain. But the first point that I want to take away from this passage is that God does not create people equally. And if you need evidence of that, just imagine me standing next to LeBron James or, uh, I don't know, Elon Musk or who else is out there? Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I mean, just name it, right? <laughs> like, uh, keep, it, keep naming it, right? And, and just know that if we stood next to each other, if I, if I stood next to someone who was, I don't know, good at math, because I'm just not, right? <laughs> if I stood next to somebody who, I don't know, was a great athlete, we would just know right off the bat that God did not create us equally. And of course, I'm not talking about equal value. We're equal in value. We are equally loved by God, but we are not equal. And unless we admit that, we won't fully understand the truth of this passage. That clearly, someone who's been given five talents is not the same as someone who's been given one talent. And it's not that they're loved unequally. It's not that they're of unequal worth. It's just simply that they're not the same. But because we are not equal, our standards that we're measured by are not equal. And this should set us free. Instead of looking at what other people are doing and accomplishing, we should be looking at what God has assigned to us. We are not the same as our neighbor. We are not the same as the person down the street or the person on TV. Let me also contextualize. The church that you're in is not the same as the church down the street. Your family is not the same as the family of your neighbors. And this should set us free because all we have to focus on is what is assigned to us. The world judges success by fruitfulness, but God judges success by faithfulness. Let me say this one more time. The world judges success by fruitfulness, but God judges success by faithfulness. I remember there was a missionary that visited my church out in Chicago when I was pastoring out there. And honestly, I had this full day of ministry and I had like 60 youth kids that I was in charge of. I had a staff of young adult leaders, like 10 or 15 at the time. And I remember the Sundays were just so busy and I was sitting in our EM service like after, after being with youth kids all day and I was just tired and this missionary was giving their testimony and they were saying that, I forgot what country they were out, but they were in this really like small city out in an Asian country. And I, they had been there for like seven years. And I remember they went there with the dream and the hope and the vision from God of starting an orphanage. And, and uh, they wanted to, to reach out to the underprivileged. And, and I remember they had this big smile on their face. You know, there was this missionary couple. And they had so much joy in their hearts as they were sharing this testimony. Right? And, and they were sharing this story. And I was kind of checked out because I was tired. I was thinking about my ministry. And I remember something they said all of a sudden caught my focus. And they said that we have been out there for seven years. And we started out 
with three children, right? And they were ministering to these three underprivileged children, you know, um, that, that nobody else wanted to teach and they were poor and they had been ministering. And they, we, we were, and they said that we had been ministering faithfully for seven years. And our ministry grew from three to 11 strong. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. Like I was at church every single Sunday saying these 60 kids won't listen, Lord. <laughs> and I, I've been so unfruitful and I've been discouraged because they don't listen. And, you know, I only, out of 60, maybe only 20 really believe in you, Jesus. And I just remember, I just remember hearing this missionary say with such joy that after seven years, Seven years. <laughs> Can you imagine? Seven years. They, they said that we are now impacting lives of 11 young people in the community. And I just remember that number resonated again and again. And all I could think about was 11 people and seven years. Do you know why? Because all my life, I've been taught the wrong metric of success. Come on, somebody. All my life. I have been taught how much you should have by seven years, how much you should have by one year and two years, how much money you should have produced, so what kind of building we should have, and, and how many people and how effective the ministry should be. But the reason for the joy on that missionary's face was because they understood God's definition of success. Because they knew that as long as I'm faithful to his call and to the assignments, I am succeeding in my God's eyes. Woo! I'm getting convicted right now. <laughs> this is for me right now. <laughs> the world judges you by how much you do and accomplish. So no wonder we get so confused. But God judges us by what we do, about what we do with what he has given to us. Much of the confusion around this passage comes from the fact that the word talent means something in English, right? Like uh, all throughout my childhood, I, I heard about this passage in church, but I was confused because talent means ability. It means something that I'm able to do, right? And so I thought of my friends who could sing or who could dance or who could do math really well or you know, who could do public speaking or who could preach and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and that's why we get confused. A talent back then simply referred to a measurement of weighing gold or silver. In ancient Rome, a talent was something like 71 pounds of silver. So just imagine 71 pounds of gold or silver. That's a lot, right? That, so even one talent was worth a lot, more than a year's wages, right? I, I would even say several years worth of wages. One talent was actually an enormous amount. But we get confused when we hear talent because we think that this person received one ability. And the five-talent person received five abilities. But a talent, metaphorically speaking, in this passage, doesn't just refer to your abilities. It does refer to your abilities, but not just your abilities. Then what does a talent represent in this passage? And this is my second point. It represents everything you have from God. 
And when I say everything, I mean everything. I mean your gifts and your abilities, but I also mean your personality. Some of you, without even trying, you can make people laugh. We need people like that in the body of Christ. Come on, somebody. It means your passions and your dreams and your ambitions. I remember a long time ago uh, when I was in high school, I was talking about my dreams for the kingdom of God to one of my close friends at church. And he was like, Andrew, my dream is to study biology. And I was like, why? <laughs> I'm just, I was an English major. You know, I, I, I've always loved humanities. I, you know, I love the arts and film and photography. I was like, why would anyone want to do that? I'm like, that can't be from God. <laughs> why would you want to study biology, right? And this kid looks at me with fire in his eyes, senior in high school. He looks at me. He goes, Andrew, one day I hope to study so hard and I want to prove to this world through science why God is real. I was like, wow, praise God. I don't want that. <laughs> but your passions, your dreams, did you know even your looks, your charisma, your money and your bank account, your family, your friends, the job that you have, did you know that God opened that door? What does Deuteronomy 8 say? You might say that it is by my power and my strength that I have I have earned this wealth. But Deuteronomy 8 also tells us, but who gave you the ability to gain wealth? Come on, somebody. Everything that we have, this building, this church, this community, everything we have is a talent given to us by God, entrusted to us to be faithful. And some people tell me, oh, but God didn't give me anything. They look at this passage and they say, I'm one of the people who got no talents. But you know what they really mean? What they really mean is God didn't give me what he gave other people. God didn't give to me what he gave my friend. And God didn't give to me what he gave my neighbor. God didn't give me the same gifts. God didn't make me as good looking or as rich or et cetera, et cetera. And that is what people mean when they say they haven't received anything. I'm reminded of a story in Exodus chapter 4 where a man named Moses had a similar insecurity. When God tasked him with one of the greatest callings and biggest callings in human history. And God tells him, I want you to rescue my people out of Egypt. And Moses answers, what if they do not believe me? Very valid. <laughs> or listen to me. And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hands? Can you do me a favor and turn to a neighbor and say, what is in your hand? <laughs> I'm a very interactive preacher, so this really helps me. <laughs> What is that in your hands? Can, can you all stick out your hand with me like this? I believe that the Lord is asking each and every one of us, what is in your hand? And Moses replied, a staff. Do you know why a staff was in his hand? Because for years, 
Moses had been shepherding sheep. <laughs> he had been a shepherd in the desert, in the wilderness. And now you're calling me to lead a new people group out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, out of the most powerful nation in the entire world at the time, and lead them into a promised land? I am not ready to do that. But God is saying, I caused you to shepherd sheep for so long with the staff, and now you're going to shepherd people with the same staff. Come on, somebody. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. What's so amazing to me is that when God gives us an assignment, and God gives us a calling, and God tells us to do something, our quickest response is, God, you didn't give me enough to do what you called me to do. But the response of God is so beautiful. And all he says is, what did I place in your hands already? What is already in your hands? Who's already next to you? You might not have a crowd following you. Who's next to you? Who's around you? Who's already coming to your church? Who's already in your community? Who do you already influence in your family, among your friends? What abilities do you already possess because of the life he has called you to live up until this point? And the Bible, if you think about it, is filled with people like this, where God just says, what do you have? We know the, the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus looks at this crowd and has compassion on them. And he says, well, what do we have? <laughs> I don't want them to go and, and travel because they might pass out. They're so hungry. What do we have? And a boy says, I have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, well, that's enough. And constantly, all throughout the Bible, he asks, what is in your hands? Another such story, a very famous story, comes from 1 Samuel 17, where a man named David is called to go to war against a man named Goliath. And so Saul brings him, and he's like, this kid is about to go on a suicide mission, and so I want to at least equip him for what he's about to do. And it says, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. Why? Because the king's armor and king's clothes is the best clothes, right, in the entire kingdom. And so if you're going to go against Goliath, might as well dress you in the best. So he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around. And I imagine a little kid in his dad's clothes, or, you know, and the pants are falling down, and the, the helmet is covering his eyes. And, and that's kind of the imagery that I get. And he said, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. I love this passage because I think it demonstrates to us how so many of us live our lives. The reason why we feel so uncomfortable sometimes as we fight the battles of our daily lives is because we're wearing someone else's armor. Come on, somebody. 
The reason why we're discontent with our church, we're discontent with our community, we're discontent with our bank account, we're discontent with so many things in our lives, is because we have put on ourselves someone else's armor. And so when we go to fight the battles that we are called to fight, we realize it feels awkward and we can't fight properly. But imagine instead of putting on the best armor, can I be real? Our parents' armor, ooh, that they've placed on us all our lives. Ooh, come on, somebody. The armor of our friends, the armor of somebody else, the armor of what it means to succeed. What if we took what was in our hands, in the shepherd's field, in the wilderness, when we are alone with God, and we say, God, use this for your glory. Woo! <laughs> this is, I'm getting convicted, man. <laughs> the question we should ask isn't, how can I be successful? The question we should ask is, what is in my hands? You're not called to succeed at what everyone else is doing. You're called to be faithful with what's in your hands. The last thing I want to note is that God the master awarded the first two servants the same. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful that I, I don't think he's like, oh, you have five talents? You're my favorite, son. <laughs> You're my favorite daughter. No, he looks at the five-talent person and the two-talent servant and says, you are both faithful, so I'm going to reward you with much. And he awarded them the same. But who is the only one that he did not reward in this passage? Not the person who had one talent. It was the servant who did nothing with what they were given. It's the person that said, well, I don't have as much, so I need to hide it or else I might lose it. Because you only gave me one. And they were the only servant that God did not reward. But for those who find it hard to count your blessings, to find it hard to see in this situation and circumstance, in this current season, what is in my hands, then let me tell you guys, we need our hearts to be filled with gratitude. And we need to look at what God has placed in front of us. And every morning and every night, Say, thank you, Jesus. If we don't have a perfect family, then thank God that we have an imperfect family that we get to be faithful to. If you don't have a church that's perfect, then thank God for the people who are here, the imperfect, sinful people who make our communities what they are and fill it with spice and flavor. Come on, somebody. <laughs> that we get to be faithful with every single week. If you don't have the dream job and the dream career and the dream number in your bank account, then thank God for what you have. And if you have nothing else, can I just say to us today, can we thank God that we have the greatest gift of all, the gift of the gospel message, that we are all, every single one of us, called to be faithful with every single day. The gospel of knowing that Jesus Christ loves us and died for our sins. 
And just knowing that there's a church like this gives me so much hope for LA. Can I just say that? And I, I just, I'm just overwhelmed when I talk about faithfulness because I just know how much God has given to us. And I just, I just want to end uh, with this illustration and I just have a few applications. But um, there was this pastor um, named Rick Joyner and then he, he had this vision from God about the throne room of Jesus and about those who are seated clo closest to Jesus. And he said, as he uh, started from the outer gates all the, way, all the way to the seats closest to Jesus, he said that I started to recognize less and less people. And he was like, the people in the outer gates, I, I recognized some famous preachers and famous leaders and authors like, who had influenced me on earth. But as I got closer to Jesus, I started to recognize less and less faces. So I had to ask them who they were. And you know, uh, what was something beautiful he wrote in this book? He said that, he said that I realized that many of them were mothers. And I was like, wow, my mom's going to be there someday. <laughs> And he said that many of them were people who had no reward on earth, but were faithful to the call every single step of the way. And there were people who, who didn't have riches and who unnamed missionaries and, and faceless people who were just faithful to what God had given to them. And they did it all their lives until they were with Jesus. And now they are eternally rewarded in the seats next to him. And so I don't know about you guys, but I want to be found faithful by my master. And I want to accumulate riches in this world, in the kingdom riches, so that one day I can lay it at his feet and say, this is what I have earned for you. Can I get an amen? amen. So my, I just have, oh, sorry, three, four points of application real quick. How can we be faithful? Number one, Live with excellence. And just like Daniel, when the world looks at us and, and the work that we produce, let them see the glory of God and the excellence that we put into our work, the excellence that we put into our time, the excellence that we put into all that we do. Number two, live with diligence. And excellence is the quality of what we produce, but diligence is the quality of our work. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for humans, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So even when your boss isn't looking, come on, somebody. <laughs> even when your manager is not there in the room, um, I just want to share this story that I heard. And um, if you guys have ever seen an image of the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo, Michelangelo painted, and I think this took, what, like three, four years to paint, just every single day painting. And he would lie down on a ladder and paint the ceiling, you know? And it's, 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 it's one of the most insane works of art that you'll ever see, an entire ceiling painted with just a tribute to the glory of God, you know, the creation of man with angels, with the heavenlies. And, and, and someone was asking him once, and they said, Michelangelo, why did you spend so much time on this piece of art? 
Why did you spend so much time on the Sistine Chapel, especially where there's dark crevices in the corner where no one will ever see? Who's ever going to climb up here to look at this corner to see all these intricate details on this angel's face? And they said, why did he spend so much time working on this masterpiece? Because no one will see. And Michelangelo famously responded, because God will see. And in the same way, and no one else is looking, let us work diligently because God will see. Number three, and this is really important when it comes to faithfulness, live within your limits. God has given us grace in certain areas and to go beyond that could be religion or even sin. And what I mean by that is be honest about your life. Be honest about, this one hits a little hard, but be honest about your age (laughs) and be honest about your life stage. Be honest about your job and your family. Be honest about what God has called you to right now. He hasn't called you to more or less than the grace that he's given to you in this season. Does that make sense? Be honest with your limitations and live within the grace that God has given to us. Finally, the last point is live a life of thankfulness. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And the point is simple. Realize and recognize everything and anything we have in our hands comes from God. And at the end of the day, we have to give it back. So let's be faithful in our lives. And we will succeed in God's eyes.